You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you can stand to honor the reading of God's Word, if you're visiting at Meadowbrook, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that when we read uh, from the pages of this book, Holy Scripture, that you hear the very voice of the living God. We ask you to stand because I really believe this, the elders believe this, that, that we have nothing, I have nothing really great to offer you outside of this book. And so that's why we have you stand for the reading of God's Word and have you sit when I start talking about it. But uh, we're, we've been going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working our way through the Beatitudes, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can be seated. So as I said, we've been going through this uh, sermon series. Uh, Maybe some of you have the Beatitudes memorized. We were sitting at the dinner table and we were talking and then I just just started spouting off the Beatitudes because each week we've been been, uh, going through a Beatitude and uh, it's been really good for my soul. I said at the beginning of the sermon series that I'm not deconstructing my faith, but I'm rethinking, I'm just thinking through what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? That's why we're spending our time in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the center of what it means to be a Christian. That's what being a Christian looks like. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been uh, working through the Beatitudes, and each Beatitude builds on, on, uh, you know, the previous one, and and so this shows us what it, what it looks like to be a Christian, you know, that, that the poor in spirit are those who, who come to the cross of Jesus Christ with empty hands. There's no righteousness that you know that you can bring to the cross. You come as one who, who is w- willing and ready to receive this, this mercy and this grace that's available at the cross. Those who mourn are not only poor in, poor in spirit, but they mourn over their sin the sin of their own, and then the sin of the world. And so when you come to the cross, you come with empty hands as one who's mourning and grieving over your sin, knowing that there is a righteousness outside of yourself, and that righteousness is the cure for your problem, for, for my problem. And, and then those who are meek are those who uh, come to the cross and humble themselves and submit themselves to the will of this God who sent his Son on our behalf. So we've been working through that and, 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 and more. But I want to share a story about a guy by the name of Robert Sandeman, who lived in the 1700s. He was a Scottish pastor and uh, eventually came to the United States in 1763. He, he believed that, that the assurance of a person's salvation can be gained simply by believing certain facts about Jesus and the gospel. 
So if I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave, if I believe that mentally, cognitively, that I will spend eternity in heaven and nothing will ever change that. And guys like John Wesley and, and guys like Andrew Fuller, I mentioned them because they, those are two guys who are polar opposites theologically, wrote in a, a, against this theology that this guy was, 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 was teaching, saying this is dangerous for the church. To say that, the, that to be a Christian, that all, is all that that means is that I believe certain facts about the gospel is, is dangerous. And so there are certain uh, names that have been given to this guy's theology. Uh, a long name for it is Sendomanianism, um, which, you know, I probably butchered that. And then, and then a theological, a contemporary theological name for it is free grace theology. It's also known as easy believism. And so he, is, he, he taught this. He came to America in 1763, which is like 20-some years after the first Great Awakening. I don't know how many years before the second Great Awakening. And I would say that the revivalism as we know it today, like revivals and just walking down the aisle and saying a prayer and filling out a card and, and having that as the basis of your assurance of salvation can be, can be tied back all the way back to this guy. And so he came to the States and people were already reading his, his stuff and uh, it was spreading through, through the churches he befriended a guy by the name of Ezra Stiles. And what's so important about this is Ezra Stiles eventually became the president of Yale University. Ezra Stiles said, I believe he has sown, speaking of his friend, I believe that he has sown a seed in America which will, grow, which will up and grow, though I have no apprehension of any great ill effect. What he was saying there was, this is good for the church. And it's going to spread. And it did. You know, the, the, this idea, this notion that if my child says a prayer of faith, that then I can tell that child as that child grows up, regardless of how that child lives his or her life, that that child can have assurance of salvation comes from this guy's teaching. And I ask, I'm asking you, as we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, is that what Jesus believed? Is that what Jesus believes? Because uh, we, we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount that, that uh, to, to the Christian is somebody who, like I said earlier, the Christian is somebody who comes to the cross with empty hands. I had nothing to bring to God's table of righteousness. There's nothing in me that God looks at and says, oh, you know, you're kind of good. I'm going to let you into heaven because uh, I'm kind of obligated. There's nothing in me uh, to, to warrant God to do that. And, and the only thing that will lead me to the cross besides the grace of God is I, I, a grieving over my sin, uh, that I need something to help me, and the willingness to submit myself to his, to his will, that that's what the Christian looks like. And, and the result of that is a hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is interesting because of what Jesus says in this final beatitude. It, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we won't get to until like December, I said that and people were like, oh, what? Yes, we're going to be in the, Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount for a long time. Um, not really that long, but some of you think really long, but that's okay. We need this. But he said, 
he, Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the, of the Mount, he says, not everyone, in fact, the words will be on the screen. Let's read this together, ready? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that scary? It's scary. I I think in in some of our churches, we, we have convinced people they are saved because they said something or because they simply believed in their brain something without it having affected their lives. We've convinced them that they'll stand before God and he'll say, come on in. And Jesus said, there are going to be people who are going to, say, who are going to say that. I prophesied in your name. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I had a conversation yesterday through Zoom with somebody on the other side of planet Earth about somebody who, who uh, was doing like, things, miracles, supposed miracles, being able to, to foretell, you know, tell the supposed future and do this and that. And, and uh, the question was asked, well, isn't this of God because this person, because people are getting baptized and this person, this person is claiming to be of Jesus, but the, some of the things this person is teaching clearly goes against the word of God. And I said, no, even the demons acknowledge that Jesus was who he claimed to be. We read through the Gospels, demons would say, hey, son of God, Jesus, and Jesus would shut him up. And, and so this is relevant. Like what we read in the Sermon on the, uh, of the Mount is relevant. And there will be people who will stand before Jesus thinking that they belong when they really didn't. And, and this, the Beatitudes just help us understand what, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is, what has, this is what has driven you to the cross. And this is the result. The result is you're willing to give mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. You're... you're, you're, uh, you're uh, Pure, you're, you have a, you're pure in heart in the sense that you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You want to please this God who saved you through his son. And so then Jesus gives us this final beatitude. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he says something crazy. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad when that happens to you. And, and I believe that the, this last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, I think this is the climax of all the beatitudes. Right? Like, there's another way you could, you could phrase this, this, this beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for hungering and thirsting for Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are three questions I'm going to answer, I'm going to try to answer in, in our time together. And the first is, who are the persecuted? Because so I think sometimes we, we think that because somebody says something bad about us or because they don't like our political views or they don't like this, that we're being persecuted. But who are the persecuted? It's interesting, the, the beatitude that precedes this is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I said last week that the peacemaker is the person, is the Christian who's hunger and thirsting for Jesus hunger and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that only Jesus can satisfy the heart. And everywhere that person goes, he brings or she brings the peace of God with them. He brings the shalom of God with him or her. 
Like, you bring the presence of God wherever you go. If you're a Christian, you bring the presence of God wherever you go. And, and wherever you go, if you're hungering and thirsting for, for Jesus Christ, those who don't care for Jesus, those who hate Jesus, well, well they, don't, they won't put up with you or they won't like you. That's the persecuted. I read a recent poll that said, uh, it was by LifeWay Research, said, of, um, I think they surveyed a, over 1,000 Americans, and 59% uh, believe that Christians are facing growing levels of persecution in America. And I thought this was funny. 36% of those surveyed believe Christians complain too much about how they're treated in America. I thought, that's kind of funny. Uh, I think Jesus' understanding, what Jesus thought about persecution when he said what he said is different than what we tend to think of persecution in America. Those who are persecuted are persecuted because you're living your life in such a way you can't imagine life without Jesus. And there are those around you that can't tolerate that. The persecuted that Jesus say, says is blessed here are, are those who, um, who are convinced that Jesus offers a better way. And they're living their life in, in light of that. And Jesus said, you know, don't be surprised when people think you're an idiot because you're following me. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Meaning, you know, Jesus said, they said terrible things about me. Don't be surprised if they say terrible things about you because of your association with me. I mean, we're, we're guilty by association with Jesus. Jesus said this. He said in John 15, actually, let's read this together. This is a good one. Ready? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's why the world hates you. And Jesus said, if you're persecuted because of your association with me, if you're persecuted because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, righteousness only I can satisfy, the world's going to hate you. Don't be surprised if they, if they malign you. Don't be surprised if they say bad things about you or bring their worst to you. And the question I think is good for us to ask as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's a question that we're meant to ask is, does the world, when, when people see our lives, do they see a person who hungers and thirsts for Jesus? And what I mean by that is this. I don't mean you can't stop talking about Jesus in such a way that you agitate everybody around you, right? I don't mean you feel like you've got a track bomb everybody in your office place or in your, in your neighborhood. Like, you know what tracks are, right? Little, like, tracks. I, I don't mean that. I'm talking about... The person who, who's been saved from their sin because they came to the cross, empty hands, they're grieving over their sin, they're submitting their will to, the, to, to, to this Lord, Jesus, like they, they, they come to the cross, and as a result of that, they can't imagine life apart from Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, it's, like Jesus has become such a part of your DNA spiritually. It's just who you are now. 
You're a follower of Jesus. And uh, you, you might not be standing on the corner shouting, you know, telling people how to find Jesus, but it's so much a part of you that it's pretty hard to not notice. And we're forced to ask those kinds of questions. And so why are they persecuted? That's the next question. Uh, Jesus tells us that the reason why they're persecuted is they're persecuted because of righteousness' sake. That's where I get the whole point here, that, that, that it's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's why they're being persecuted. In verse, uh, in, in, in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is picking up on that, and he's saying, you're going to be persecuted for that, possibly. Maybe not everybody, but a large number of Christians and a large number of my followers will be persecuted because they're hungering and thirsting for me. That their life is so, that, 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 that I'm so evident in their life that the world just can't stand them. You're, you're blessed. That's what he said. Blessed are those who are persecuted. So what does that mean? You know, I was, I was thinking about that. So in John chapter 6, Jesus said, this is what it means. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never what? Thirst. Sound familiar, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who's the righteousness he's speaking of? Jesus. And he goes on to say in John chapter 6, he elaborates on it. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Now he's telling this, he's saying this to a group of people who had just been miraculously fed by Jesus. Thousands of people were fed by Jesus, and they were just blown, their minds were blown over that. They're like, wow, this is crazy. Never saw anybody do this before. We've got we've to see him do more. So Jesus got on a boat, went to the other side of, um, uh, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee, and they followed him, and they met him there. And Jesus said to him, he said, look, you're here because you've had your stomachs filled. But I'm telling you, there's something greater than just food that you ate, miraculously. And I'm what's greater. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they're like, okay. They're probably, at this point, they're probably like, okay, this is kind of confusing. We really came just to see you do more miracles. But Jesus didn't shut up. He just kept going. This is one of those moments in Jesus' life where it's like time to, time to make room in the pews or time to make room in the seats, right? Um, he says something that just, threw them completely off. He said, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will say, it's actually talking about communion, that miraculously during Mass, the cup and the bread become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying anything weird. He's saying, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, here's the point, abides in me and I in him. This is what he's saying. Whoever follows me, not, not whoever pays lip service to me, 
Not whoever says, yeah, Jesus is a nice guy and I believe he died on the cross for my sins and he's a good moral example. No, whoever, whoever believes in me to the point where they are, are just submitting their lives before me and were willing to follow me, that's what abiding is. And what's going to happen is his ways are going to shape your ways. His thinking is going to shape your thinking. It's very different than a lot of, uh, a lot of American evangelicalism in, in, our, in, our, in the churches today. It's, this is going to affect your entire life. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that does is it reorients your, your mind, your emotions, and your will to Jesus. It draws you to Jesus. And he's saying, that's the person who, who's, whose DNA, his spiritual DNA, her spiritual DNA is so affected by the gospel that it's almost impossible to know that you, that, uh, that you don't belong to him, that you do belong to him. It's like you know that you belong to him. This is the life that you're living. Uh, to believe in Jesus is to love and follow Jesus. I read, there was a little book, it was the Gospel of John, and on the back of the Gospel of John, it was kind of retranslated a little bit by the Free Grace Theology people, and on the back it said, uh, basically it said something to the effect, you don't have to be a friend of Jesus to be a Christian. You can be a Christian without being a friend of Jesus. Being a friend of Jesus comes with discipleship. That might come later, but you can, you can not be a friend of Jesus and still be a Christian. I'm like, that is retarded. Like, that is... That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, and, and Jesus is saying here, no. To follow Jesus, or to follow me, it's going to affect your whole being. And I just want to show my cards a little bit. Like this whole free grace thing, I bought that hook, line, and sinker when I was in Bible college. Before Bible college, actually. I went to a church that taught this, and I'm like, yes, this is it. And I believe that if you taught anything other than this, that to the, the, all you have to do is believe the facts of the gospel. It doesn't have to affect the way you live your life. That, that that is the gospel. And if you teach anything other than that, then you're teaching a false gospel. I used to believe that. And I had a class in Bible college. It was a class on Deuteronomy. And uh, it was an elective. And, and so I took it. And, and we were forced to read through Deuteronomy. But not just read through the book of Deuteronomy. We had to find the parallels of Deuteronomy all through the Bible, like where it's quoted all throughout the Bible. And not just that, there were three of us that were asked to edit the entire class project of finding that because the professor was going to make a book of it. I was one of the students that was asked to edit the, entire, the class's work, and plus I was given two chapters to do myself. And one of the chapters I was asked to do was Deuteronomy chapter 30. And then I came across Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, and it blew my world apart my theological world apart. It says this, that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you may love him and obey him. It blew, it just rocked my world. And this is what Jesus is saying here. The, the person who truly comes to the cross for salvation is the person who will be changed. You will be changed. I say this often on Sunday, that uh, that God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will change your life. I asked a few weeks ago um, about, you know, I asked this question. 
Those of you who, have been, who are Christians, you know, how many of you can say that your life looks different now than it did when you first believed in Jesus? And every hand went up in both services. And so this is the person that the world looks at and, and the world hates. In fact, the true Christian follows Jesus in such a way that he or she becomes the aroma of life to some, that is to other Christians and also to those who are seeking, and then at the same time becomes the aroma of death to those who are perishing. Those who, the Bible says, the God of of this world has blinded their eyes. That the Christian is the aroma of death to that person. And so what is the world's response to that, those who are perishing? It's to to put away the person who reminds them of death. But to the Christian, or to, to, to those who you are the aroma of life to, it's life. How many of you have been in another, in another country where you encountered a believer, another Christian, who didn't share your language? And, right, yeah, <laughs> Irina and David, who just came back from Colombia. Um, and, and when you encountered that person who didn't share your language, who was a believer, did you not experience a bond with that person? That it was, it's, it's just crazy. That bond is, is, is this bond that, that you share as a spiritual family in Jesus. You are the aroma of life to one another, even if you don't share the same language. But to the rest of the world, you're the aroma of death. And, and you know, Christians all over the world today are suffering persecution. I went online. I don't, how many of you have seen or know of Fox's, or not Fox's, um, oh, what is it, uh, Voice of the Martyrs? If you, if you don't know of it, look it up, Google it, and go to their website. They actually, it's a helpful ministry to the persecuted church, but they also share prayer requests of those who are presently being persecuted. I uh, pulled three prayer requests that I want to share with you just to highlight this. Like two Christian families were recently kicked out of their village, I believe this was in, in India, due to their faith in Jesus Christ. Twice the families were brought before the village council where in the presence of police officers, government authorities, and radical Hindu leaders, they were pushed to reconvert to Hinduism. When the family stood firm in their faith, village leaders banned them from the village. Now, if you don't think that's a big deal, it's a big deal. When you're forced out of your village and in some places like in India, that's a dangerous place to be. It's not safe outside the village. They were forced outside the village because of their faith in Jesus. Another story, another prayer request I read is a Muslim man, well, formerly a Muslim man, who was a painter, and he was, he was hired to do some work for a missionary, and that missionary shared the gospel with him. He gave his life to Jesus. His family, his Muslim family, uh, his mom and dad were completely put off by that, angered by that, forced him to marry a Muslim woman. I don't know how that works, but forced him to marry a Muslim woman, uh, they had a child together. They wanted the child. They wanted him to perform some some uh, Islamic uh, ceremony with that child or for that child. He refused. So they turned the wife against him to the point where she took out a knife and stabbed him and put him in the hospital. He came back home. He was continued. The family continued to. To, har- to bring harm to him. He fled with his children to another place, I think another country, um, and now he has found refuge with a local pastor. That's, I mean, that's all recent. 
And then this was heartbreaking. Evodia, uh, who was 14 years of age, her mother and her mother were captured in, um, I, I think probably somewhere in Africa, was, were captured in 2021 by ISIS terrorists. Her attackers killed her brother in front of her because of their Christian faith. She was then tortured and forced to become a prostitute at the age of 14. She and her, and her mother spent eight months living in, in the bush with their ISIS captors before escaping. And here's the rub. Jesus said to, to the families kicked out of their village, to the, to the man who converts to, G, to Christianity and is and stabbed by his wife, and to a little teenage girl who's forced into prostitution because of her faith, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does he mean by that? Like, what does he mean by that? What kind of joy, and this is the third question, what kind of joy can be found for the persecuted? Does that mean be happy <laughs> while you're forced into prostitution? No, this is why I'm saying this. This final beatitude is the climax of everything that Jesus had said before it. That if you're hungering and you're thirsting for righteousness, if Jesus is your life, there is a conviction and an understanding uh, that, that, that the world may bring its worst to you, but what you have in Jesus, they can never take from you. They can never take from you. Uh, it's the kind of rejoicing that comes out of a confidence that there is something far greater and something more permanent than the worst that man can, can do to you. Here's a funny thing I was thinking about. I think it's, it's interesting, and I think it puts in perspective what Jesus is saying here. In America, uh, we work, right? Most of us you know, work if you're not retired. And if you don't like your job, there's, there's, there's usually some kind of staying power Something is compelling you to stay in your job. And what is that something that, is, that compels you to stay into your, in your place of employment until, until you can get out? Retirement. Retirement, right? So, uh, so retirement. So you, you're looking maybe uh, you know, 10 years from now I can retire, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. But, but as you get closer, you're like, oh, I, I just got to stick it out, just five more years. If I stick it out five more years, then I can retire, right? Am I right? And, and so you, there's, a, there's, a, there's this, this power, this, this lore that enables you to persevere in light of what's coming. For what? Like, so what's the average lifespan of, of Americans in the country today? 70, is it 76? 76 years old, okay. And what is the average age for retiring? What was it? Some of you are like, don't go there, please. I'm looking forward to retirement. You're telling me I have, what, 12 years of life, and then I'm dead? Uh, so, so, what, 12 years, 20 years, maybe longer if, if, if you're able to plan right? Uh, to enjoy what? And, and Jesus is, what Jesus is saying here is, man, there's something far greater that's permanent. There's no disease that's going to take it from you. There's death will not take it from you. Nothing will take it from you. Not even persecution and torture will take it from you. It is yours. 
It is yours because you belong to him. You belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is your everything. And he has everything for you, right? Like it, All that belongs to him is yours by association and, and the fact that you belong to the family. Like, like we saw this last week. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I told you, like, sons of God is a, it's a title. It's, it's a title of, uh, of, of firstborn. The firstborn son in the culture surrounding Jesus would, would get the inheritance. And, and so the point here is if you are a son, if you are a daughter of the living God who have been adopted by him because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all that belongs to, to Jesus is yours. He is our inheritance. That's why Romans chapter 8 is such good news. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord because he is our everything. We, he is our life. He is our, he is our everything. And so uh, we belong to him and, by, and based on that, all that is his is ours. So what is yours? If you're a Christian... What is it that is yours? What is it that it will enable you to rejoice even when this world brings its worst? And I, you know, it could be persecution, but you fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be persecution. I mean, well, the, this great reward that is ours is not just to the persecuted. It is to all those who belong to Jesus. Whatever has happened to you, nothing can take from you what God has promised to you. In Jesus. So what is yours? What is ours? Well, just through the Beatitudes, here's what, this is what is ours. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Ours is the comfort of God. Ours is the inheritance of a new earth. Ours is the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. Ours is the mercy of God. Ours is the approval of God. Ours is the inheritance of God. Ours is that even in death we still get Christ. That's what is ours. And, and, and so this is who we are, brothers and sisters. And if you're not a Christian, you're here today, I would just implore you, man, why are you waiting? <laughs> why wait? The, the Bible says, Jesus says, come to me all who are, who are weary and tired, and I will give you rest. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Why would you wait? And for those of us who have not, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, man, this is who you are in Jesus. And he will not abandon you. And he will not forsake you. Things might not go the way that you want them to go. And life might throw you a curveball under the sovereign will of God. But he loves you and he treasures you. And he, and he is doing something in your life. Some time ago, I wrote down 17 observations, a previous church, I wrote down 17 observations from the Bible of what it means to be in Jesus. I, I shared this in an e-letter, I think, a couple of years ago here. And I just want to share them with you. Again, this is who we are in Jesus. In Jesus, you are justified freely by his grace. In Jesus, you are, not God, in Jesus, you are now God's children. In Jesus, you are forgiven of all your sins. In Jesus, you are loved by God Almighty. In Jesus, you belong to God. In Jesus, you will never be forsaken or abandoned by God. 
In Jesus, you are treasured by God. In Jesus, you are the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus, there is for you no condemnation. In Jesus, God is working all things together for your good. In Jesus, you have obtained an inheritance that only God alone can give. In Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In Jesus, you are sons and daughters of God. In Jesus, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints in Christ. In Jesus, you are a member of the body of Christ. In Jesus, you are set apart for the mission of God. And in Jesus, you are loved by an everlasting God. That's what is yours in Jesus. That's who you are. That's your new identity. And I'll close with this story. There's a, one, of the, one of the heroes of my faith is a guy by the name of Polycarp. He was, he was mentored and discipled by the Apostle John. And he spent a lifetime as a pastor, over 80 years, serving the Lord. And uh, they sent soldiers of the empire to, to arrest him. And this is what's so interesting about this. The story goes that they came to his house, or the place where he was. I don't know if it was his house or somebody else's house. He was upstairs, or on the roof, praying, and uh, they waited for him to finish praying. And he walked down the steps, and he knew they were waiting for him. He knew that the soldiers were waiting for him. He walked down the steps, and they arrested him. And they said to him, he said, if you just say, Caesar is Lord, you can live in freedom. If you just say it. I, you don't even have to believe it, Polycarp. Just say it. And you can live a life of freedom. And this is what he replied. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they took him before a jeering crowd in some stadium for all to see. And his crime was proclaimed to the crowd. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. And the crowd responded that Polycarp should be burned alive. And Polycarp's response was this, it is necessary to be burned alive. So they lit his body on fire. And so I was thinking about that. What was it besides the fact that the Holy Spirit empowered him, just like Jesus promised, when Jesus said, don't worry about what you will say when you're brought before kings and councils, what you're going to say. The Spirit, the counselor, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Besides that, what was it that emboldened him? What, what was it that empowered him? What, what was it that, that, that enabled him to say, bring on the flames? I am not going to blaspheme my king. I think it was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Our identity is in that city. Our identity is in that kingdom. Our identity is, in, is rooted in that Lord, in that King, in that Savior, the one that we hunger and thirst for if you are a Christian in this room. Amen? And if you're not, stop waiting before you leave here. Talk to God and tell Him what, what you believe and what you're feeling. You don't have to have all your theological questions answered but you do need to be settled on, 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 on these 
realities, that Jesus Christ lived a life that you could never live, and he went to a cross to die a death that you deserved and I deserved, under the wrath of God for you and for me, and on the third day he rose from the grave where he defanged death and conquered it forever. And all who, who believe that, like really believe it, not just with your head, but you believe it, just like you acted on sitting on that chair. You didn't examine it to make sure it was going to hold you up. You sat on that thing to trust in Jesus, and on, uh, on that level, you will be saved. That's what the Bible promises. We belong to a different city. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives, how you're transforming each and every Christian in this room. You are molding and shaping them. You are life to us. You are life to us. And no matter what happens, and no matter what we do, there is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. None. You do not disown your sons or your daughters. We are yours. We are treasured by you. We are adored by you. We are forever, as a result of our faith and trust in Jesus, we are forever sons and daughters. And we can't wait for that new city to come. We can't wait for that other city. We can't wait for the Prince of Peace to come and balance the scales of justice to bring peace We can't wait for that day. But until that day, God, we want to live lives that are faithful to you. We want to shine like a light on a hill. We want to be sought in a world that is rotten. We want to be that kind of people. Enable us and empower us to be that kind of people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.